But Ra, thank you so much for having me. Hello. Hey, good to be with you, New Life, and I really am excited to share with you this morning uh, from God's Word. Before we get into it, I want to just say a huge thank you to Ryan and the team. Um, they've just welcomed me with open arms. They've spoiled me uh, with food, and we've had bras, and I spoke at the men's breakfast yesterday, which was awesome, just getting to meet a bunch of, of the New Life men. And I just want to honor Ryan because, and I said this at the breakfast yesterday, but I want to honor him because he is a, an incredible leader. I hope you know that. Uh, he's a visionary, yeah, he's a pioneer, and... Uh, and not only is he a great leader and a preacher, but he's also an amazing father. I don't know how he does it, uh, but he's an amazing father. He's an amazing husband. And I think at the end of the day, that's what matters most, right? And so, Ra, thank you so much for having me all day today. And uh, hopefully you'll have me back one day and we'd love to have you at Grace as well. Uh, my name is Tom. As Ra said, I pastor a church in Durban. Uh, we've got a bunch of different campuses. Um, I don't generally like the term pastor, you know, people call me Pastor Tom. I just say, you just call me Tom uh, because I know when sometimes when you tell people, especially people outside the church, that you're a pastor, what I found is that they act differently around you. It's kind of weird. And, uh, and sometimes I play golf with guys who are not Christians and, you know, the first nine holes, these oaks are swearing it up, telling all the rude jokes and I just keep quiet, you know. And then I know it's coming at the, night, you know, at the halfway house. I know they're going to ask me the question, so Tom, what do you do? <laughs> And then I tell them, and it's like slow-mo, it's like a car accident. I say, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and you can see these oaks' eyes, like, 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 like a priest. I'm like, yeah, like that. And, uh, and then the, the next nine holes is totally different. They're like, oh, great putt, pastor, amen, well done. You know, they're giving me their church CV and all this stuff. Um, but, uh, but, but Ra has asked me to share with you today, and I want to kind of get straight into it. I want to start by asking a question, and the question is, why are you here? Why are you here? Not, like, like not here in, in Malashleli, not here in New Life Church. I'm sure you have lots of reasons for that. But why are you here? Like, why are you here on this earth? Like, what is this life all about? That's actually the question. What is the meaning of life? To shout it out. <laughs> if you don't have an answer straight away, don't feel too bad because this question has actually baffled philosophers and scientists and some of the greatest thinkers really since the beginning of time. In fact, there was a book written a few years ago where they asked 250 of the leading thinkers and philosophers of our day this exact question, what is the meaning of life? And quite surprising and maybe a little depressing was their answers. Most of them said, we don't know. A lot of them actually said, we don't think there is any meaning to life. And a lot of them said, well, we don't know, but if you find out, will you tell us? <laughs> we don't know, we don't think there is any, and if you find out, let us know. It's no surprise then that levels of anxiety and depression are increasing in our society because psychologists will tell you, and those of you who've dealt with anxiety or depression in your own life, you know this, that without a sense of purpose, without a why, without a reason to get out of bed in the morning, uh, the human mind falls into all sorts of disrepair and darkness. And so thank God we have the scriptures, right? I mean, because the Bible actually tells us everything we need to know about who we are and about why we're here. Let me read to you Jesus' words recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most famous speech ever recorded. And this is what Jesus says, and I want to read to you from the message version uh, this morning. He says this, let me tell you why you're here. I love that. Jesus just gets straight to the point. There's no ambiguity. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out 
the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Let me just say this. Salt is an additive. It's something we add to our food. It brings out, enhances the flavor of what's already there. And that is how it ought to be with us as Christians, as followers of Christ. We are meant to add to the world, not subtract from it. We are meant to, to, to not run away or hide from it as so many Christians do. We are not of the world, be sure. We, we are citizens of a different kingdom, but we are most certainly called into it. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're meant to be known for what we are for, not just for what we're against. And this is so important. Here's another way to put it, says Jesus. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, for those of us in the room, turn to someone and say, I'm a light bearer. You're a light bearer. For those watching online, we're so glad that you've joined us. You are a light bearer. And Jesus says, if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? No, I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives by opening up to others. Here's the amazing thing. You'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Isn't that amazing? When we shine our lights, we give permission for others to shine and we actually introduce people to this heavenly Father. And I love this. Jesus makes it clear. We are salt and light. That's the title of my message today if you're taking notes. Salt and light. We are light bearers and he doesn't call us to keep our light to ourselves, but to carry this light into our world, into your world, into our surroundings. To be light bearers, we're not, we're not, a, we're not putting it under a bucket because let's be honest, this world is desperate for some illumination, amen? Desperate for some light. And what Jesus does here is he gives us both our identity and our purpose. Say identity, say purpose. I love you guys, you guys talk back to me, this is so good, I love it. The Durban Oaks, they just look at you. I, the, Jesus gives us the who and the why. This is our identity. This is who we are. We are light bearers. And the why is we are made to shine. That's our purpose. That's why we're here on earth. But you've got to understand the direction that this moves. It moves from the center out, from who to why. Who we are, from identity to purpose. Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul writes, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. You see the movement from identity, you are God's masterpiece, that's who you are, to purpose, you were created to do good things. From who to why, and then eventually that moves out into what? In other words, our behavior, our actions, what we actually do, what that actually looks like. But we gotta get the direction right. We gotta start with the who. Here's the truth, if you wanna fulfill your purpose of shining in this world, if you wanna have a positive impact on, your, on the relationships around you, on your children, then first we must understand who we are in Christ Jesus, amen? You see, this is the, the thing about identity. This is really important. This is in no, our identity is in no way based on our performance. That's religion. 
It's not based on how good we've been or how bad we've been or how many times we come to church or how much we give. No, none of that. It's based purely on the fact that we are God's children for those who who call Christ Lord and Savior, that we belong to Him, that we are His masterpiece, His workmanship, and He delights in us. We sung about that magnificent truth earlier. Think about this. When Jesus told His disciples, you are the light of the world, they hadn't done anything. They hadn't performed any miracles. They hadn't cast out any demons. But because that's the thing, we don't do good things to earn brownie points with God and then become his masterpiece. No, we are his masterpiece and therefore do good things. Very, very important. Religion, religion tries to do it the other way around. Religion says you've got to behave, you've got to get it right, and then you'll be his masterpiece. But grace comes along and says, no, no, you are his masterpiece. You are his child. And therefore, you can do nothing else but do good things and shine. Amen? All right. Okay, so now that we kind of got that baseline, I know you guys know this already. I'm just covering the bases. But now that we, we know the who and the why, now we've got to look at the what. What does that actually look like to be salt and light in our world? And there are many things we could talk about, but today I want to leave you with three things that I think it looks like and I think the world are looking to, to what it means to be salt and light. Are you ready? Awesome. Okay, here we go. The first thing, I think it looks like unity. Say unity. I've got two boys, Will and Luke. They're 11 and 9. They're either best friends or arch enemies. <laughs> they, they fight um, they fight quite a lot. Um, I remember, if, not so much anymore, but when they were younger, they used to fight in the back of the car. That was annoying because you can't reach them while you're driving. And you're trying to, and you're trying to, I figured out though very quickly, a short, sharp tap on the brakes brings them right forward into play, okay? That's just a little parenting tip for you. Um, <laughs> but these guys, they, they get into, they kind of, they, they're very wild, they're very boisterous, and so they often hurt themselves. We've ended up in ER with stitches and head injuries and all kinds of stuff. Um, in fact, just a few weeks ago, my oldest boy played his first contact rugby match, and he came away with four stitches on his head. But you should see the other boy, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but not so long ago, about a couple of years ago, in fact, he actually fell out of a tree, and he actually... Uh, Broke his jaw and got concussed. It was quite a big deal. Anyway, we're in the car and we're quite worried about him because he was a bit confused and out of it. And, and he says, mom, what happened? And Jess, my wife said, you fell out of a tree. And he goes, oh. And then about two minutes later, he's like, mom, what happened? And she said, you fell out of a tree. And he said, oh. And we were like, oh, okay. You know, concussion, let's get this guy. So we, we took him to the hospital and they put him on the thing and they're taking him off to, the doctor kind of arrived you know, looked at his eyes and whatever, and they, they were taking him off to get a, an MRI scan. And what do you think the first question I asked the doctor was? As a responsible father, as a pastor, as a Christian, what do you think I asked? I said, Doc, just before you, you know, care for my child, I just want to know, what religion are you? Are you born again? You know, what, what, what's your thoughts on the whole Calvinist-Arminian debate? No, of course I didn't have a deep, you know, deep discussion about his theology or his political views. What I cared about is his competency. Because why? Because this is an emergency. And during an emergency, what I figured out is that our priorities get reshuffled pretty quick. And what's most important makes its way to the top of the list without any conscious effort on our part, right? Guys, I would say that the church, not this church, the church is in a state of emergency. But we're currently too distracted and too divided to notice. 
And we're sadly, we've continued to allow ourselves to be divided by secondary concerns. While what should be our biggest concern largely goes unaddressed, and that is division. You see, the enemy of the church is not other people, other parties, those Christians, those non-Christians, whatever. The enemy is not the liberals or the conservatives. The real enemy is division itself. The word evil comes from the Greek diabolos. Diabolos means to separate, to divide. And when we see those divisions and those barriers going up, that is literally the work of the evil one. What's the one thing, think about this, what's the one thing Jesus prayed about before he went to the cross? Unity. And I think the reason he prayed for it is because he knows it doesn't come naturally to us. Division comes naturally to us. What's in it for me comes naturally to us. But unity with, pe unity with people like me, that's easy. But unity with people not like me, unity with people who don't like me, <laughs> that's a whole lot harder. And Jesus saw this coming and he saw us coming. And so he prayed this prayer for us in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, not just the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The those is you and I. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe you have sent me. One for the win. <laughs> One is the win. Of all the things Jesus could have prayed for, why did he choose to pray for this? I think he, choose to, he chose to pray for unity because unity, friends, is not a nice to have. <laughs> unity is mission critical. It's an essential ingredient. Bottom line, we cannot accomplish the will of God without unity because unity is the will of God. Chuck Mingo, a pastor in the States, put it like this. We cannot preach a united gospel as a divided church. And unfortunately, as Martin Luther King said many years ago, Sunday mornings is in many places around the world still the most segregated hour of the week. Thank God not here in this place. And may it never be so. And I'm so blown away by what God is doing in this city and through your church in bringing people from all backgrounds together under one banner, and that's the name of Jesus. Amen? <laughs> Guys, let's, let's prioritize unity over agreement. <laughs> in our marriages, hello? In our parenting, in, with our colleagues, in the church, we can have disagreement, but we can prioritize unity over agreement. This is, this, I mean, this, this hits home. This is a, a church thing. This is also a personal thing. I mean, I, Jess and I, my wife and I, we've been married for 17 years. I, I, when I tell people I've been married 17 years, they look at me like, geez, dude, were you 12 when you got married? But a little bit older than that. Anyway, um, but we've been married 17 years. Sometimes, I don't know if this is just me and you, but, but sometimes it feels like we fight about the same two or three things, like over and over again. Just the same stuff. I think next time we have a fight about the kids or whatever, I'm just going to, you know, record it on my phone. And then the next time we fight about that, I'll just pu push play on the recording and we can go have a coffee. Because <laughs> it's the same thing. I was wondering whether I should share this, but, but the other day, it was a couple, it was a couple of days ago, we went and have dinner with a good friends of ours. We hadn't seen them in ages and it was quite a far drive, about 45 minutes drive. And we had a babysitter, so we settled the kids. 
and we had the babysitter. And while we were getting everything ready, the one kid was, anyway, and we were, now we started like fighting with each other, arguing. I know you know what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> Don't look at me like, oh, it's just you. Um, anyway, we're in the car, and now it's one of those like silent car trips. And like you're waiting for the other person to break, you know, it's like, and I can get pretty icy. I'm like Elsa and Frozen. I'm just like letting, you know, if just, so I'm just standing there. I'm like, not to, she needs to say something. She's the one. And I felt like God says to me, hey, Tom, remember uh, you're going to uh, Imalashleni in a few weeks? Yeah. What are you preaching on again? Yeah, unity. Oh, yeah. Remember that. And I felt like God, I said, okay, God, fine. What do you want me to say? He says, you need to say sorry. I'm not saying sorry. You know? <laughs> I mean, this stuff's not easy. I did say sorry, by the way. <laughs> and so we're going to disagree. We're going to disagree as a church. We're going to disagree as couples. It's normal. But I do believe it's possible to disagree morally, theologically, politically, without disrupting unity. Jesus thought so. He prayed so. So let's do so. Still with me? Second thing about being salt and light in this world, what it looks like. It looks like unity and it looks like love. Say love. Jesus said, famous words, John 13, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you behave properly, no, oh, if you believe correctly, no, that comes later. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you argue with people on Facebook and send that Christian email to so many people, you know what I mean? Guys, I had to tell my church, I was like, guys, please stop sending me the Christian emails. Because you know, you have to like forward this to 10 people, otherwise the lightning will strike you or whatever. I feel like COVID happened because I didn't forward emails. That's what I, I feel like is my fault. <laughs> honestly, and I, and I kind of joke about this, but honestly, if I was a non-believer and I looked at, and my only point of reference of what Christians were like were social media, I would conclude that I would want nothing to do with these people. Because they're mean and they're angry and they're, right? By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, <laughs> the world will know whose we are and whose kingdom we represent by how we treat, respond to, serve, forgive, and talk about one another. Especially those who don't look like us or believe like us or vote like us. And let me just say this, it's kind of like a disclaimer. When I talk about love, I'm not talking about some kind of wishy-washy, like, hey man, just love and, you know, I'm not talking about that. We don't get to define this love. Jesus already defined it. Verse 34, the verse before, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like sacrifice, going to the cross, laying down. I didn't come to serve, but I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And this new brand of extraordinary love, it was personal for the men seated around that table. We think of love as I have love. We think immediately of the cross, right? But not the disciples. They could play back in their memories the last three years spent with Jesus. This was deeply personal. Hey, you know, Jesus said, hey, Matthew, you remember what you were doing when we first met? Yes, Rabbi. Of course, I remember what I was doing. Everyone remembers what I was doing. I was a tax collector. I was stealing from my own people under the banner of Rome for personal gain. I was a traitor. That's right, Matthew. But you remember how I loved you, welcomed you, 
invited you to be part of a bigger story, to turn around to change? Well, guess what? That's how I'm calling you to love those around you. Go and do the same. And he could have done that with every single one of the disciples. So we don't get to define love. Jesus already defined it. As Andy Stanley says, he says, we can decide to follow Jesus, but we don't get to decide what following Jesus looks like. And you know what it looks like? It looks like Jesus. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? It looks like Jesus. And you know what the world, unbelievers, expect us to look and sound and behave like? Like Jesus. The nerve. How dare they? <laughs> That's what we're called to be. And so when I say, you know, love is the answer, it's always been the answer. Sometimes people will look at me and go, oh, sweet man. But you don't actually know how the real world works, Tom. This is not how progress is made. You know, the business world, the corporate world, that is dog-eat-dog -dog world, and love sounds great in practice, but hey, this is not how progress is made. Love isn't a winning strategy, to which I reply, reply, perhaps not, but so what? I'm not the one suggesting that Jesus' new covenant command should govern our behavior, responses, language, and tone. Jesus is. And I think Jesus was onto something. Because from an outside perspective, it didn't look like he won, did it? He came and he died. The movement failed. Or so they thought. Or so they thought. And yet 2,000 years later, here we sit. <laughs> and Nero and you know, Rome are a footnote in the story of Jesus Christ. His example of love inspired others, inspired his disciples that after his death and erection, this ragtag bunch of followers, they took his example seriously and they began to love like he loved. And they began to welcome in the Gentiles, take care of, of orphans and children that had never been done before. It was followers of Christ that, that started the first orphanages, the first hospitals. It started a movement, a movement that changed the world and is still changing the world today, amen? Before I move on to the final thing, that being salt and light looks like. I want to tell you a story. And it's a story of what love can look like in a very dark world. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Athlete A. It's a harrowing documentary on Netflix about Larry Nasser, the USA gymnastics team doctor who sexually assaulted hundreds of women over a period of years. It's a very disturbing film. And I wouldn't recommend it unless you, it's, it's, it's pretty tough to watch. But there was a moment during the trials that stood out for me as a beacon, as a light on a hill. And that's the moment that Rachel Dan Hollander testified in court. She was actually the first woman to publicly accuse NASA, but she was the last woman to speak at the conviction trial of 150 women who spoke. And uh, I'm reading you the transcript from that trial. You can watch it, but um, from Andy's book, I'm reading to you from uh, Not In It To Win It. He says this, when her turn finally came, Rachel addressed her initial remarks to the men and women in the courtroom and she asked this question, how much is a little girl worth? Her question hung in the air. And then she said, I submit to you that these children are worth everything. And then Rachel turned to, to Larry Nasser and she said this. She said, in our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin 
he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you as well. Absolute silence. Everyone in the courtroom was stunned. It was so different to so many of the the bitterness and the unforgiveness that had come before in some of the testimonies. And he goes on to reflect in his book. He says, if Rachel Dan Hollander had stood up in that courtroom and spewed years of pent-up venom served, reserved for a day like this one, should it ever have arrived, no one would have blamed her. I imagine that there were days that she would have done exactly that had the opportunity presented itself. But on that day, Jesus, not anger, was her Lord. Jesus, rather than vindication, compelled her. On that day, her past did not define her. She didn't come to win. She came to forgive. She brought the kingdom of God into a courtroom, and there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. She showed up with the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, and the wrecking ball of forgiveness. By His grace, she says, I too choose to love this way. This is what it looks like to be salt and light. Final thing, are you with me? Final thing that way it looks like is it looks like sacrifice, unity, love, and sacrifice. Because here's the thing, it's always gonna cost you something to shine. It costs to invest in someone else's life. It costs to be generous. It costs to love. It costs to forgive. I mean, even the, the scripture that Ryan used around the giving, you know, give, press down, and we give them back to you, shaking down, press. He's also talking about forgiveness there. He says, forgive, and it will be given back to you, pressed down, shaking together, overflowing. It's almost never convenient. It's never smooth, but it is always worth it. Let me tell you another story real quick. In 156 AD, and again, 100 years later, there were two terrible plagues that swept through the the world at the time, wiping out nearly 25% of the entire population. Think about that. We've had a taste of what a pandemic can be like. Imagine one in every four people dying. It got so bad that all rules of humanity went out the door. Mothers and fathers were throwing their children out of windows to prevent themselves from being infected. It was absolute catastrophe. People were betraying friends and family and everyone was out to save themselves. In fact, the elite, the, the nurses and the doctors and the, 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 the educated, they, they just ran for the hills. They just abandoned everyone. And one of those guys was a guy by the name of Galen. He was a very well-known doctor of the time. And Galen wasn't a Christian, but he saw what the Christians did and he wrote about it. And we have record of what he wrote uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. Let me read to you his account. He said, most Christians during the plague showed unabounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. 
heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many departed their lives serenely happy for they were infected by their neighbors and they cheerfully accepted their pains. They lost their lives in this manner. Many of the Christians cheerfully took their neighbor's death upon themselves by nursing them back to health and in the process died in their place. Guys, this really happened. This is a true story. And you know what's so crazy about it? Historians believe and most agree that the plagues was actually, and the way Christians responded in the plagues was actually one of the key factors in the growth of the, of the church throughout that age. From a ragtag bunch of believers to nearly 56% of the Roman population just a few hundred years later. I mean, talk about a church growth strategy. <laughs> And I thought about this. Okay, you know, next Sunday, guys, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to gather here at the church and then we're going uh, to head out into the streets. And you know what we can do? We're going to die. Who's in? There's a sign-up form. You can zap it. You know, there's a table at the back, you know. I'm not sure. Hey, we've got one. Woo, one. Yes. Who's with me? But, but that was their strategy, the gospel in action. People who actually embodied the, the gospel and were actually living it out in unbelievable circumstances, loving, serving, sacrificing. It's amazing, right? Now we got Christians who are like, oh, you know, the worship, I just, it's just so long and oh my goodness. And, oh, you know, sorry, I'm using an Amschlange accent that's I'm from. Oh my, guys, so loud. Oh, you know. I can't believe the pastor has a tattoo. Oh, wait, you've got a way more hectic tattoo. Anyway, let's move on. And I don't tell the story of the plagues to make us feel guilty or bad about ourselves, but I do find it deeply challenging to my own faith. Don't you? So let me end by saying this. If you feel overwhelmed by what does it mean to shine your light, let me just say this. Just start small. Turn to someone and say, start small. This is not about going out and becoming missionaries in some far off land. Jesus actually makes it clear in Matthew 10. He says, don't begin by traveling to some far off place to convert unbelievers. And don't try to be dramatic by tackling some public enemy. Just go to the lost, confused people. Where? Right here in the neighborhood. Tell them that the kingdom is here. We don't need to go to some far off country to be salt and light or to find people who need God right here in this city in your town, in your home, in the cubicle working next to you, even under your roof, there are people who are desperate for the love and the grace and the mercy of the, and the truth of Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced, New Life, if we would pursue unity and love above all else, and we'd be willing to sacrifice our own positions and our own preferences for the sake of others, for the sake of lost people, I'm absolutely convinced we can change the world. It happened once before, and it can happen again. Amen? And here's the thing. Your little light, I got a little light here. Thank you, team, for, for organizing this for me. Your little light, it may seem insignificant. It may seem small. It may feel like, well, what difference does it make for me to give? What difference does it make for me to lead that small group or, you know, welcome people at the door or do a cool hip-hop dance? I mean, what is that? <laughs> I'm disappointed that Ryan wasn't part of the dance personally, but I'm holding out for the third service. But here's what I've realized. When it comes to the darkness, you'd be amazed at how much light one little light bulb is able to give off. You'd be amazed how one little light bulb can shine so much light 
into a dark, dark room. And here's the thing about being a light bulb, being a light, a light bearer. It's not about trying harder, guys. This light bulb cannot shine by itself. In and of itself, it does not have the capacity to shine. It is merely a vessel through which the electricity shines. Are you with me? It's the same with us. Like this little light bulb, we are merely light bearers. We carry God's light, not our own light. And God is in fact the electricity Himself. He is the very source of light. So this is not about trying harder to be better. No, this is about plugging into the source. And He is the source. The Holy Spirit is the source. And when we connect to the source, not only are we able to shine, we realize we were designed to shine. Just like this bulb. And the best part, when we plug into the source, we realize that we are actually connected to something far bigger and far broader than our own little lives. Because right now, running through this building, and you have a beautiful building, by the way, running through this building are thousands of cables and, and, and running through, connecting many different lights to one another, going beyond this building into your city, across our nation, when ESCOM's working, amen? Um, but God doesn't do load shedding. <laughs> And when we begin to shine together through those connections, through the community of believers all around the world called the church, then we begin to shine together in harmony. And guess what? We begin to light up rooms. We begin to light up homes and families and churches and businesses and communities. And yes, even our world. So this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This, uh, you guys are going to keep going. Um, Let's let our light shine. Let's change the world. Jesus believed it. Let's believe it. And let's do it again. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close. I just want to just create a moment for you to receive from God. And I want to just as pray as kind of a, a commissioned prayer over you. A prayer for you. A prayer to you. The words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. One more time. So won't you bow your heads. Close your eyes. You can put your hands out. It's just a sign of saying, Holy Spirit, God, I want to receive from you. I want to be your light. And let me read Jesus' words over you this morning. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Father, this is not about us. Far from it. This is all about you. This is about glorifying your name. And so Lord, help us to shine brightly. Help us to do what we were designed to do, to be salt and light. Help us to prioritize unity over agreement, to love as you have loved us and to sacrifice for your sake in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Rob. Awesome.